16, Matthew chapter 16, and uh, I really enjoyed singing that last song because what we do here on Sunday mornings, why we're here, is because And it should be because we recognize just how much we need Jesus. Like there's a there's a book called A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. It's it's a a well-known novel. And at the beginning, the main character, John Wheelwright, says that he has a, a faith that has to be patched up every weekend. And I want you to know if you're here this morning and that describes you like it describes me that we have a faith that needs to be patched up every weekend. I hope that you know that this is where you need to be this morning. We're going to look at a text of scripture that I think many of us are familiar with. And we know what the text says but we might be unfamiliar with what the text means. What I mean by that is this is one of those texts that a lot of times the best way I can describe it is it's been devotionalized. It's been devotionalized. It's a verse. It can, our passage contains a verse that's often taken out and somebody writes a devotional on it. They give a devotional and they'll say a lot of true things about the verse that they talk about, but But really, when we understand these verses in the context of Matthew's gospel, and we consider them all together, what I think this text teaches us is exactly what many of us need to hear this morning if we have a faith that needs to be patched up this morning. So, let's look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. This is a turning point in Matthew's gospel. If you think about the structure of Matthew's gospel, you can think of three broad divisions. The first division goes from verse 1 of chapter 1 all the way to chapter 4, verse 17. That's section 1. After that, it goes. this middle section goes from... 418 all the way to 1620 really this section right here this is the ending of the second major division of Matthew's gospel and then the next major division goes all the way to the end and so I I say that because this is a key passage it is a turning point in which Peter expresses a vital truth concerning the identity of Jesus who is Jesus? And then this revelation of Jesus' identity carries all the way through to the end of Matthew's gospel. So, having that in mind, what is the turning point? Well, look at verse 13. It says that when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, this is a very prompt, uh, it's a probing question, because Jesus asks, what are they saying about me? It's, it's kind of that impersonal they. Like, what are they saying about the Son of Man? What are they saying about me? And that's a comfortable question. 
Well, I say, oh, we can give you a whole paper. We could, we could write a dissertation. Look, some people are saying you're John the Baptist. Some are saying that you're Elijah. Others are saying you're in Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, what's a major theme in all of those answers? It's that he's a prophet. He's some kind of prophet. And that's not false, is it? And Jesus is a, he, he's the prophet. He is a prophet. You think about what's traditionally understood as the three offices of Christ, that he is prophet, priest, and king. Well, one of those is prophet, right? So he is a prophet. But the problem is nobody's really quite sure which one he is. Maybe he's a reincarnated John the Baptist. John was beheaded, you remember. He was beheaded by Herod. And so they think, well, maybe the spirit of John the Baptist is, is with us again. Or maybe it's Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what I love about what comes next is we move from that impersonal they to the probing, the haunting question. Jesus says, and if you have a translation that emphasizes the original, he says, but you, it's emphasized in the Greek, Jesus says, but you, and it's plural, in the South, we say y'all, right? But, but y'all, who do y'all say I am? Right? So he's asking this, the disciples from verse 13 that are around him, who do you say I am? I, I know what they say. Thanks for letting me know what they say, but what do you say? And now we can talk about, that's, that's how some of us like to keep Jesus. We like to talk about Jesus what other people say about Jesus, and there's a place for that, right? Apologetics, uh, giving a defense for the faith, understanding the way our culture understands Jesus, right? It's important for us to understand, for us to understand that many in our culture understand Jesus as simply a good teacher, as a moral example, as someone who you can take and leave, but little pieces of, of his teachings here and there. But remember, last time we were in Matthew, we said a disciple receives and rests in Jesus as he's revealed in his word, right? So there's no taking and leaving parts of Jesus. But a lot of times we treat Jesus like a Jewish Aeneas. If, if you read the Aeneid, Virgil's Aeneid, the the key characteristic of Aeneas is that he's a pious man. And if you go read the introduction, in whatever translation you read, it'll talk about the pious man who endured many trials and tribulations and hardships to establish a kingdom for his people. Well, that sounds a little bit like Jesus, right? And so, you know, little Roman boys and girls are reading the Aeneid and they're saying, you know, I wonder if they had like WWAD bracelets back then. Like, what would Aeneas do, right? But instead, it's not just that Jesus is a good teacher. Our, our culture understands some things. I think about all, uh, different atheists who say such a thing. I think about Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion. He says, the, the, the teachings of Jesus in comparison to the Old Testament, and he said, he, he, uh, he, uh, what's the word, he uh, pits them against each other as if one is better than the other. But he says Jesus' teachings are, on the most part, admirable, right? 
This is one of the, the new atheists, one of the, the most vocal opponents of religion in general, saying there are things that I admire about Jesus' teaching. I think about Bertrand Russell, who was a philosopher. He wrote an essay entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And even there, he says, there are some teachings that are admirable. But he would say the only ones that are admirable are the ones that you find in other religions. So there is the they. We understand what, what many may say, but the question really is, who do you say he is? And that's the turn that happens. Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Now, how you answer that question is the most important answer you can give. How we answer this question is distinguishes between are we believers, are we forgiven of our sins, are we made right with God, or are we lost? Are we still in our sins, and are we on our way to hell? What does Peter say in verse 16? And this is the verse that really we, it gets devotionalized. Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, don't, don't miss what a startling statement that is. For Peter, a Jew, to say that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Let's break that apart. First of all, he says, You are the Messiah. What does that mean? Jesus, you are God's sent, anointed Messiah. You are the one we've been waiting for. You are the one that all the promises are going to find their fulfillment in. You're it. You're the one we've been waiting for. But then he says, the son of the living God. So it's not just that Jesus is the Messiah. Here, Peter is saying, is you, Peter is saying you are God. Not just that you're sent by God, but you are God. You're the son of the living God. So if we, if we wanted to even condense this even more, Peter is essentially saying, Jesus, you're the savior we've been waiting for. You're the Savior we've been waiting for all the way back in Genesis. We knew there was going to come one who was going to crush the head of the serpent. He was going to come through Abraham's seed. He was going to be a descendant of David. He was going to, uh, Isaiah 53, take our sins and our punishment, and he was going to endure what we deserved. You're him. You're the Messiah, and you're the Son of the living God. You are Yahweh come to save us now that's a that's a very profound statement for a Jew to say first of all that that Yahweh is in the flesh but that Yahweh is father son holy spirit so he makes this amazing confession he he has this truth that he professes, right? And a lot of times what we do is we stop here, right? And can I just go ahead and say, I know why we all stop here, because it gets really kind of weird after this, right? Because what does it say after that? 
It says, Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And then he gave the disciples orders not to tell, uh, to tell no one that he was the Messiah. So what in the world is going on here? I think the main idea of this passage in this section of Scripture is, yes, Peter's confession is important, but I think Peter's confession is the, the backdrop against which we read verses 17 through 19. Just look at it based on the number of words, right? You have Jesus, he says a couple words. Who do they say I am? Some say this, some say that. Well, who do you say they am? The Messiah, the Son of the living God. But then... Just vocabulary count-wise, where is Matthew's emphasis here? It's not so much on Peter's confession, although that's important, but it's what comes after this. So I think if we want to look for the main idea in the passage, we need to look where Matthew spends more of his time. Does that make sense? Okay. So what is he saying here? Well, he says, blessed are you. So he affirms Matthew's response. He says, you are correct. This blessed are you. That's the same phrase that we see in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those. Blessed, blessed, blessed. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. But then look at verse, excuse me, look at verse 18. He says, you are Peter. And the Greek is Petros. And then he says, on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Now, this is one of the key texts that the Roman Catholic Church uses to argue for the Pope, uh, the, the whole system that they have where Peter is the, the, the spiritual head of the church. What evangelicals and many Christians will do is they'll come and say, well, he calls Peter Petros, which is a masculine word. And then he says on this rock, Petra, it's a feminine word. We don't really do gendered language. In, but if you know Spanish or in another language, you have masculine and feminine. So they'll say there's two separate things. Well, that, that's not really an airtight argument. We have to be honest and say Peter is the focus of Jesus here. Jesus says, I'm going to build my rock on Peter. But it's not just Peter. And this is what the Catholic Church does. They'll say, it's Peter, because he says it's Peter. And we have to admit, it's Peter, right? He's talking about Peter. I'm going to build my, rock on, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter, the rock, right? So what do we, how do we argue against kind of the Catholic understanding? Well, just very quickly, if you go to the very next passage, right, where Jesus says uh, that he's going to be crucified and raised on the third day. Peter says, Lord, this will never happen to you. And then Jesus turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Right? He calls Peter Satan. So if we want to be consistent, if we say Peter's the rock on which he's building the church, and then the very next passage say, and Peter is Satan, you see how that becomes problematic, right? 
So it's not just Peter, but it's Peter in virtue of his confession. It's Peter with this confession coming out of his mouth. And so what that does is this sets up our, a better understanding. When, when Jesus says Peter is going to be the rock on which he builds the church, he's talking about using Peter. And we see this in the book of Acts. Peter is seminal. He, he is so important for the way the, the gospel spreads in the book of Acts, especially in Acts 10 when he has that vision and he, he's told to arise, kill and eat, and he realizes that the gospel and the Holy Spirit is for the Gentiles as well. Peter preaches throughout the early chapters of the book of Acts saying what? Essentially this, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Trust in him. Turn from your sins, right? So yes, Jesus builds the rock on Peter, but Peter as he's preaching the gospel. So the foundation of the church, Jesus says, is a church that preaches the gospel. So we begin to see that the focus is not so much on, on Peter's confession, it's important, but what Jesus is getting at here is, now that we're moving to this transition into the next part, what kind of church is Jesus going to build? What kind of uh, assembly is he going to create, and how is he going to create it? How is he going to sustain it? So I think this passage really is about how does Jesus, Jesus establish and build and grow his church? And you say, where, where else do you see that? Well, notice it says, I will, I will uh, build it on this rock. I will build my church and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not overpower it. So let's just take a poll. How many of you want to be in a church that not even hell can stand against? Right? Sounds good, <laughs> right? Sounds great. So the next question is, how do we be that church? What does it take to be that church that not even the gates of hell prevail against, that, that not even Hades can overpower? This, 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 it's offensive language. You know, so, much, so often we think of, of the church being on the defensive, you know, and that, that the gates of Hades, but... But a, a church that is built and established the way Jesus would have it is one that overpowers the gates of hell. It is a church that is on the offensive. So how do we be that church? How, how can we be that church? Well, that's where we get into verse 19. He says, Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. So the obvious question is, what are the keys to the kingdom? All right? Let's find an answer. Flip over to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Jesus uses this phrase again in verse 18. So in the context of church accountability, or what's often church discipline, holding Christians accountable, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which they have received, right? This, this very well-known passage, Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. If he listens, you want a brother. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others. If he doesn't listen, take it to the church. So notice here, Jesus talks about the church. This is the second mention of the church. The first mention of the church is in Matthew 16, 
So you have the, the context of the church, but then notice the language in verse 18. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Where have we heard that before? Matthew 16, right? So, what does it mean to, to have the keys of the kingdom? What are the keys of the kingdom? Matthew tells us. It's these two, these two things that we see in this passage. It's gospel proclamation and Christian accountability. Gospel proclamation and Christian accountability. Those are the two keys of the kingdom. And by those two keys, heaven is opened up or it is closed. How? Well, think about it. If, if you preach the gospel, when we preach the gospel, we're saying Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners. He took their punishment. He bore the wrath that they deserve for their sins. He died in their place so that if any would trust in him, would turn from their sins and rest in what Jesus did, they will be forgiven. Anyone that does that, guess what? Heaven is now opened up to you, is it not? If anyone hears that same message and they reject it, and they say, no, thank you, I don't trust Jesus, I don't want any part of that, guess what? Heaven is closed. The gospel is the key of the kingdom. But not just that, it opens it up to us every Sunday. Notice Jesus says, "Whatever I'll give you the keys, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. So it's not just a, understand, it's not just a one-time opening of heaven. So you go through your week and you come here on a Sunday morning and you say, oh my goodness, I, 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 there's, that, there's the, um, that song, you know, uh, Love Without End, Amen. You remember that song, that country song, you know, let me tell you a secret about a fight. You know, and it gets a little, uh, you know, he's like, last night I dreamed I died and stood outside the pearly gates and, you know, <laughs> there must be some mistake, right? If they, knew'd half, if they knew half the things I've done, they'd never let me in, right? Maybe that's how you come here feeling this morning. Like, there's no way Jesus would let me into heaven. There's no way I, I deserve any of it. And, and then you hear the gospel, and the heaven is opened up. To you. you believe it again. You say, you know what, that's right. I, I trust Jesus. Heaven is opened up again every Sunday. As we preach the gospel week in, week out, heaven is opened up to you when you receive the promise and rest in what Jesus has done. But if you reject it every week, it's closed week after week. So the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel opens up heaven and closes it, but also Christian accountability. So this morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to take communion together. But when we, when we see a brother or sister in sin... And we go to them, and they don't repent. They don't turn from their sin. And then we go to them with two or three, and then we bring it before the church, and they, we become convinced that they're not Christians, that they're not believers. Then we would tell them, do not partake of the Lord's Supper. And in doing so, we're closing off heaven. They're not believers, so they are not in, right? So this that, that comes out of Matthew 18. So take a deep breath. 
we've had to cover a lot. We've, we went everywhere from Roman Catholic Church to, right? It's a lot to, to, to process. But the main idea that I want you to see this morning is Jesus Christ establishes and builds his church through gospel proclamation and Christian accountability. Jesus Christ, let me say that again, establishes and builds his church through gospel proclamation and Christian accountability. Folks, it really is that simple. Let's, let's work our way from the corporate level to the personal level. First of all, on a corporate level, on a church-wide level. I, I really appreciated what Jesse said. It's like one of those things where, you know, you have your kids and you tell them something a million times, they don't listen, but then somebody else says it and then they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And you're just like, whatever. As long as you get it, fine, right? I, I appreciated what Jesse said about, about Poplar Spring being the exception to the rule, about being a word-centered, a word-focused church. But what I also want you to see is if we want to be a church that not even hell itself can withstand, it really is this simple. We preach the gospel. And we hold each other accountable to follow Christ. Isn't that so much simpler? Can you imagine if Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church and you must have a budget of over X amount of dollars. You must have at least this many programs. This many members. This uh, you cannot have technology that's older than 10 years. Well, we'd be right out, wouldn't we? Your facilities must not be older than 100 years, right? Jesus, guys and gals, Poplar Spring can be a church that shakes hell's boots if we preach the gospel and we hold each other accountable to follow Christ. And guess what? We're doing that. We have Sunday school classes that do that week in and week out. We have small groups that do that week in and week out. I try to do that week in and week out. And that makes us a church that Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So if you want to be a part of a church, Maybe, maybe Poplar Spring is not your church forever. Can I just tell you this? If you go looking for another church, you need to make sure it does at least these two things. They preach the gospel, the biblical gospel, the true gospel, and they hold you accountable. So that's the corporate level, but let's move to the individual level. Because here's the thing. Jesus mentions the very real possibility that heaven can be closed to us, that it can be closed off to us. What is necessary for heaven to be opened up to us is that we respond to who Jesus is in the right way and that we respond to the right Jesus. So it's not that we respond to Jesus as 
the good teacher, as the, the, Amer- the God of America, or any other subversion of Jesus. We must respond to Jesus as he is. And how is he revealed here? He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He is the Savior. Listen to me. You can get a lot of minor things about Jesus, right? And miss the one thing that matters. You can say, I like what Jesus says about this, and I like what Jesus says about that, but if you don't understand him and trust him and relate to him and rest in him as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior, you've missed the main thing. Heaven is opened up or closed based on your response to that question. Who do you say he is? There's just one problem. What did we read about in Romans? They have all gone astray. There's no one who seeks good. There is none righteous. No, not one. So, your good, that which is best for you, is to respond to Jesus Christ as Savior, to rest in Him, to trust in Him, and if you do, heaven is opened up to you. But here's the problem. We don't, do we? In and of ourselves, we don't. That's why it's so important what Jesus says to Peter in verse 17. We kind of skipped over it, but we're coming back to it now. He says, Blessed are you, Simon. Why? Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Augustine and his confessions has a phrase that occurs over and over again, and you might want to write this down as a reminder. Augustine says, command what you will. Over and over again, he tells God, your God, command what you will. Comma. But give what you command. Command what you will, God, but give what you command. God commands that in order to be saved, we must respond to Jesus as our Savior, placing our faith in Him, trusting in Him. Command what you will, God, but give what you command. Peter did not respond rightly because of a logical argument. He did not respond rightly because he read a book. He did not respond rightly for any other reason that God gave what he commanded. Jesus says, my father in heaven has revealed this to you. This is why the gospel is good news, folks. Heaven is opened up to you when you respond in faith, trusting in Jesus as your Savior. 
That revelation comes only through a work of God in your heart. Heaven is opened up to you when you repent and believe in Jesus Christ and that in and of itself is a work of God. Sorry. If we can grasp this concept that heaven is opened unto us by God's kindness and grace to reveal Christ to us, to change our hearts, that's how. God establishes and builds his church. I feel like there's, uh, there's a link that, that's not being, and this is on me, there, there's a link that's not being communicated well. The main idea is that Jesus establishes and builds his church through gospel proclamation and Christian accountability. So as you come every week with your faith-needing patch, with, with your garments tattered, with your faith tested, you come in week in and week out, and you hear that heaven is opened up to you, and it's opened up to you because of what God did on your behalf and freely gave to you, despite knowing that you were a sinner, despite the fact that you may have rebelled that week, despite the fact that you may have failed to trust, you may have failed to rest, you may have messed up so many times, yet you come in week in and week out, and you're, you're told again and again and again, Christ is enough, Christ paid it all, Jesus is your hope. That is what grows a church. That's what established the church, and that's what builds it. And so maybe this morning, the response time as we come to the Lord's Supper is not so much is it's not so much about you focusing on what you did, but focusing on what Christ did for you how heaven is opened up to you because of Jesus, how you are now brought in because of Jesus. But maybe you're here and you've rejected Jesus. What you have to understand is that heaven is closed off to you by your rejection. Relationship with God is closed off to you by your rejection. You are still in your sins, deserving of judgment. And if you reach the end of your life and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, 
you've been closed off from heaven your whole life, you should have no expectation that when you die, you will go to heaven. God will give you what you desire. If you reject Jesus your whole life, you've chosen hell your whole life. And you will get what you've asked for for your whole life, but in eternity. So maybe today is the day that you trust Jesus. You recognize that you're a sinner, that you've been separated because of your sin, and that you need Jesus to be your Savior. If that's where you are, come talk to me. I'd love to talk about what you need to do in order to have a relationship with the Son of the living God and with the living God himself. We're going to take a moment. You pray as uh, you see fit, as you feel led, and uh, also take this time to examine yourself. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, Concerning the Lord's Supper, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself, and in this way let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. So while we recognize Jesus is our only hope, we also can take this time to confess sin, to ask for forgiveness, knowing that the table and the invitation is there the forgiveness is there. We can come and sit around the table with Jesus because of what he's done. So you respond as the Lord leads. When you're ready, come get the elements. Take them back to your seat, as we often do, and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have that we we hear the gospel proclaimed and that's how you build and establish your church and as we hold each other accountable that's how you build and establish your church and we thank you God we thank you God for Jesus thank you Jesus for the love that you have shed for the great grace that you've had on us Lord we love you and we pray these things in Jesus name Amen